invested sure. in banking. And so then it went into careers in banking. Okay. So teachers are taking students' interest and going deeper mm -hmm. than also assessing, so like that funds of knowledge and also saying, okay, well, they know a lot about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to sure. touch p points on that. Kids want to know about investing. They really want to know because they see people talk about it in right. TikTok and Snapchat yeah. and social media crypto. platforms, crypto, yeah. right, all of those things. And so teachers are taking those interests and going deeper into those based on what students want, which is their life event. This is what's interesting to them right now, buying that dream car. Mm -hmm. What does that look like yes. to buy the dream yes, car? Yes, dream car was number one for Yeah, me. right? Yeah. That's what many kids, that's what they, they see, what they want. And so that's how they are approaching the content. In addition to all of the other things that they need to teach, they're also taking a moment to pause and go a little bit deeper so that kids are getting what they're interested in, so that they're thriving in the moment in which they have created for themselves. Is this class available for adults? It needs to be, right? Yeah, <laughs> It definitely needs right? to be. I mean, I, I really am very passionate about the work. Yes. Um, and I believe that it doesn't stop in high school. It needs to also be at a different stage in life, right. whether that's at the high college level right. or workforce. I believe companies need to offer some type of financial literacy course wow. that students, that, that employees can take. Sure. I think it needs to be done again when you start em embarking on your 30s because yes. life looks a little bit different then. And also I think of technology, right? right? Because by the time our high school students hit 30, the technology has probably been advanced. It might be something different, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think back to the PayPals, the Venmos. I I used to think, and not, not that I wasn't aware of this, but I always thought, wow, that's cool that you can have your money here. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a bank. Then someone much wiser than me told me. The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the February meeting of the Independent Audit Committee. I think we have a quorum, but Amy, why don't we make sure? Sure. Uh, Florine Math? Here. Charles Scheib? Here. Edward Jules? Here. Frank Rowe? Here. Tim O'Brien? Here. Uh, next item, approval of the January minutes. Is there a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Thank you. Any discussions, comments, amendments? All in favor say aye. Aye. All right. Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe Concessions at our airport. Um, Sonia, I'll ask you to introduce the team and yourself and any opening comments. And then, Phil, I will ask you to introduce yourself and your team. And if you have any opening comments, this would be a good time for that. Okay. Okay. Ready? Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sonia Montano, and I was a senior audit manager on the projects. I'm going to do a brief introduction about the audit, and then I'll turn it over to Vilma to introduce the team. 
So we conducted this audit because there are many contracts with various vendors throughout the city and contract monitoring has been identified as a risk area. Each year we include a category on our audit plan specifically for contracts and agreements. We have conducted many types of contracts out at the airport such as airlines, rental cars, and the parking shuttle services contract. In recent years, we focused on some concessionaire contract compliance, and we found that there's a need for improvement in the oversight of these contracts. It is important that vendors are held accountable to the contract terms and the proper revenue is collected. So we hope that our recommendations will continue to assist the airport personnel in strengthening contract monitoring going forward. I'll now turn it over to Vilma to introduce the team. Good morning, everyone. My name is Vilma Bernite. I was an audit manager on this audit. On my team, I have Associate Auditor Melinda Houston, Lead Auditor Anna Hansen, and then Senior Auditors Ben Tesca and Jordan Monk. Um, I welcome uh, Airport to introduce your staff. Uh, yes, uh, thank you um, for having us here. Uh, I'm Phil Washington, the Chief Executive Officer for Denver International Airport. I'm here with uh, Penny May, our Chief uh, Commercial Officer, uh, Pamela Deshant, our Senior Vice President of Concessions, and Heidi O'Neill, our Senior Vice President uh, of Accounting. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, thank the auditor uh, and his team uh, for this concessions audit um, and bringing this self-reported uh, concession revenue risks and concerns to our attention. Uh, we agree with all the recommendations uh, inside uh, the Woody Creek audit report and we're committed to taking actions uh, to address the revenue risk discussed in the audit report. Um, I'd like to uh, share a few highlights of the DEN's, uh, of DEN's concession program uh, and our planned steps uh, to mitigate the risk <coughs> and strengthen the program further. Um, uh, we've had record-breaking growth uh, at Denver International Airport in terms of the passenger traffic and concession sales. 2023 was a record year for Dan. It surpassed 2022, which was the previous record for both passenger traffic and concession growth sales. Uh, the traffic increased uh, by 12% from 69.3 million annually to in 2022 to 77.8 million in 2023. Uh, the percentage increase in concession growth sales and DEN's concession revenues are projected to outpace uh, the percentage increase in passenger traffic from 2022 to 2023. Uh, the gross sales for concessions are projected to increase by about 15% from approximately 513 million in 2022 uh, to approximately 596 in 2023. Um, our terminal complex concession revenues are projected to increase by some 18% uh, from approximately 98 million uh, in 2022 uh, to approximately 115 million in 2023. Um, Equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility is embedded in our uh, concession program. Uh, we believe it's critical to the success of the city, uh, the airport, the business community to promote the use of small uh, and historically marginalized uh, groups of people and ensure that we share every opportunity 
uh, to prepare small businesses for the best chance to succeed. Uh, we have uh, exceeded our federally determined uh, business contracting goal of 27%. Uh, we achieved 32% uh, for concessions compared to that 27% goal. Uh, in addition, uh, our ACDB concession business revenue was the highest it's been in the past six years, reaching more uh, than 200 million. And then lastly, uh, actions uh, taken or to be taken by then to uh, address this uh, concession uh, audit um, is our self-reported revenue uh, concerns that came out of the audit previously communicated with the auditor's office. Um, we have reinstated the requirement for concessions to provide audited annual statements by a certified public accountant or CPA effective January 1 uh, of 2024. Um, we plan to issue a request for proposal in 2024 for services to assist in designing, developing, and implementing a continuous monitoring uh, of concession revenues. Uh, the ongoing administration of the continuous monitoring program, which is, is expected to be fully operational in, uh, in about uh, 10 months or so, will be conducted by DEN internal audit team. Uh, and DEN's internal audit will continue to conduct concession revenue audits while developing this uh, continuous monitoring program. Um, uh, in the future, we plan to expand this continuous monitoring program to deliver self-reported revenue sources. So uh, in conclusion, again, we want to thank uh, the auditor um, and his team uh, for this audit, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you. I appreciate uh, your comments and the action that you're taking uh, very much. Why don't we begin the conversation? Yes, thank you very much. So uh, Sonia already uh, mentioned or described why it is important to audit contracts. Um, I will focus a little bit on the prior audits related specifically to concessions program. This audit is one in a series of concessions audits. As we discussed on page eight of the report, we began with the concessions management audit issued in February of 2022. This audit covered the overall concessions contracting approach, previous concessions incentive program, holdover pro practices, and documentation surrounding contract procurement process. Afterwards, we audited contract compliance for one multi-concessionaire location, and we issued the ETIS Cafe audit in November of 2022. We followed up on the concessions management audit in November of 2023 and found three recommendations fully implemented as well as three partially implemented. Based on these recent, recent audits, risks in the contract management process remain, but we also see progress as evidenced by the follow-up report and the airport's responses to this audit. And now I will pass it, pass it along to Melinda to continue discussing the background. Thank you, Vilma. On page one of the report, we describe the Denver International Airport. It served 69.3 million passengers in 2022 and was listed as the sixth busiest airport in the world based on total monthly seat capacity in 2023. On page two of the report, we discuss the airport concessions program, which includes over 185 concessions. In 2022, the airport had about 100 million in concessions operating revenue. 
The concessions division is part of a broader com commercial division at the airport and is responsible for all concession services, including monitoring vendors for compliance with concessions contracts and airport rules and regulations. The concessions division works with other agencies to manage various aspects of the program, including the airport finance team, who processes concession invoices to recognize revenue. We introduce Woody Creek on page three of the report. It opened as Paradise Cafe in 2007 in Concourse C. It is owned by Skyport Holdings, which is a joint venture between Skyport Hospitality and Gladman. Skyport Hospitality also manages this cafe. As seen in figure two, Woody Creek's contract started in 2007 and ended in 2014. Woody Creek received a premium value concessions award in 2014, but did not negotiate a new contract at that time. Instead, it went over into holdover until the airport offered a contract extension to all concessionaires from 2021 through 2024 due to COVID-19. In 2023, Woody Creek negotiated with the airport a new contract based on the premium value concessions award from 2014. The new contract requires the updated location to open in 2025 and will last until 2032. This figure also shows basic relevant terms of the current and new contract, which are minimum annual guarantee and additional percentage of sales. We discuss key contract terms on page five of the report. The minimum annual guarantee is 85% of the previous year's sales divided by 12 months and is due on the first of each month. Additional rent for Woody Creek is calculated at 18% of the previous month's sales, minus the minimum annual guarantee. This amount is due on the 10th of each month. For more details on the invoice calculations and timings, please see figure four on page six. The contract also requires that a report of the previous year's revenues be certified by a CPA the contract allows this requirement to be waived by the CEO of the airport and to have the annual statement be instead signed by an officer of the concession. This was the case from 2008 through 2023. The airport has said they reestablished the CPA requirement in 2024. The annual statement was to be submitted to the airport by February 28th every year and monthly revenue reports to be submitted by the 10th of the following month. We found that the airport was monitoring these two requirements and there were no issues with timeliness. Figure five is on page seven of the report. Woody Creek has reported making nearly 14 million in gross revenue during the audit period and paid about 2.4 million in rent during that time. Sales grew significantly in 2022 due to the COVID rebound. Woody Creek made about 6.5 million in sales and 550,000 were taking out in deductions to calculate the rent which was about 1.1 million. 2023 sales were on track to exceed those numbers. On page 34, we describe our objective to evaluate whether the airport provides adequate oversight of the Woody Creek concessions contract, including whether the cafe is accurately reporting all revenue and paying the appropriate rent it owes the city based on its sales. The audit period was January 2021 through June 2023. For those two and a half years, we reviewed monthly and annual revenue reports, compared point of sale system data to the reports, evaluated deductions from gross revenues, and verified the amounts and timing of payments to the city. This concludes the background section of the report. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we discuss our findings and recommendations? 
And before we move on, I will also say something I had in my um, script. Um, thank you very much for your help, patience, um, and cooperation. And specifically, we thank airport leadership, uh, concessions team, finance team, and the internal audit team at the airport. And if there are no, oh yes. Yes, I do. I do have one um, question, kind of for clarification of background. Um, in, in, in Appendix B, you list the Skyport hospitality ownership interests in the various entities, mm -hmm. uh, various concessions. And I was surprised, this has never occurred to me, I guess, that there would be separate LLCs for each type of um, restaurant or whatever, uh, that then, do they license the names of the other restaurants because or you know things that are someplace else like Dunkin Donuts for instance right I, I think the airport would be best to answer that question because uh, they know a lot of intricacies in that process because I think I was thinking that that Woody Creek would have been a small business but it's clearly not with its association with um, Skyport so each of the different company names are a result of a joint venture mm -hmm. so meaning concessionaire and an ACDBE. So each of these is made up, each of the, the Skyport entities is made up of separate joint ventures so that we can include different ACDBEs for each. Right, which wouldn't qualify as a small business, right? Or a minority owned business. Well, the joint venture, there's a, there's a minority business partner. Oh, who, so that's how it qualifies. Yeah, yeah. and so the, the ACDBE company forms a joint venture with a concessionaire, and that becomes what you see listed. Okay. Does that help? Yes, thank you. You're welcome. If I could ask people to make sure they're speaking at least at the microphone, it's so that our viewing audience, the thousands out there that are viewing this, <laughs> will hear the conversation. Thank you. All right, so we, we can will turn this over to Anna. Thank you, Melinda and Vilma. The report has one finding, which starts on page 10 and says the airport's limited oversight of the Woody Creek Bakery Cafe contract does not ensure compliance and accountability for revenue collection. This finding has four sub-findings, <coughs> and I will cover sub-finding one. Starting on page 11, sub-finding one states, the airport's staffing, documentation, and processes for concessions contract management are inadequate. In this sub-finding, we cover three topics, lack of clear policies and procedures, staffing, and monitoring of point-of-sale systems. To understand how the concessions team monitored the revenue-related provisions of the contract with Woody Creek, we reviewed the standard operating procedures, concessions revenue policy, concessionaire handbook, the finance team's procedure, procedures, and a document of employee names and their general tasks. While these documents sufficiently described some contract monitoring tasks, in some cases they did not show who should perform tasks, when they should be accomplished, and how these responsibilities should flow. We will discuss examples of lack of clear policies and procedures in more detail, in the deductions and late payment sections of the report. But before we move on to staffing, we would like to note that the airport has taken steps to improve its monitoring of concessions contract compliance. In 2023, 
the airport's internal audit team began revenue audits of selected concessionaires, but this report was not complete as of February 2024. On page 12 of the report, we discussed the airport is understaffed in areas important to effective contract oversight. Airport teams and an outside consultant have conducted different staffing assessments. One assessment found that staffing levels at the airport remained relatively flat or even declined since 2017. Out of 68 new potential positions, 20 were identified as high priority, including three in the concessions divisions. However, a review of the responsibilities for these three new staff show that they had not been assigned to manage revenue-related provisions in concessions contracts. Another staffing analysis showed that the concessions divisions need, uh, division needed 26 employees to adequately support its, uh, its operations by the end of 2023. But as of November 2023, airport concessions had 16 full-time employees, 38% below, the 26 positions needed. On page 14, we discussed the concessions division's lack of monitoring of point of sale systems. Point of sale systems record concessionaires' sales transactions and therefore store information which directly impacts the revenue that vendors report and the rent payments they make to the airport. There, there are requirements in both the contract and the concessions handbook that specify the type and timing of information for concessionaires to retain. However, the airport has no written requirements to monitor these systems. Without understanding how reliable vendor sales data might be, the airport cannot have reasonable assurance that its vendor's self-reported revenue is accurate and that vendors are complying with contract terms for information retention. We have two recommendations to address the lack of documentation, staffing, and monitoring. Recommendation 1.1 on page 16 says the airport should continue requesting additional staff based on risks for concession contract, revenue non-compliance, internal controls, and any other relevant factors. The agency has agreed to implement this by June 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.2 says the airport should develop, document, and implement more comprehensive procedures to monitor concessionaire contracts for compliance, particularly for the provisions related to revenue requirements and point of sale system requirements. The agency has also agreed to implement this by June 30th, 2024. This concludes our discussion of sub-finding one, and now we welcome any questions or comments. Any additional comments from the airport? I mean, we're delighted you agree. Um, no, no, no additional. Okay. Questions from the committee? No? Let's continue. Okay, thank you. So uh, Ben will cover sub-finding two. All right, thank you. Subfinding 2 on page 17 states insufficient contract monitoring enabled Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe to subtract $185,000 in unallowable deductions from gross revenue. On page 18 in table 3, you can see the types of deductions that were taken from gross revenue during our audit period. 
This includes free meals to employees, military service members, and refunds. Note that about $100,000, which is roughly 54% of discounts, were to airport employees. Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe contract states the only allowable deductions from gross revenue are returns, sales tax, tips, and federal excise taxes. We found $185,000, or about 97% of the 192,000 total of deductions were unallowable. Despite the contract's explicit list of allowable deductions, we found the airport permits the cafe and other concessionaires to take additional deductions such as the employee discount. Airport employees explained these additional discounts were reasonable in the course of business for airport concessionaires. As you can read on report page 19, <clears throat> we found no policy allowing additional discounts and no adequate process to verify deductions. This is another example where, based on interviews and policies and procedures, roles and responsibilities were unclear. Without adequately reviewing the deductions, airport, the airport would not know whether deductions were reasonable. On report page 20, we discussed the final factor for unallowable deductions <coughs> taken was that the airport did not require concessionaires to have their annual revenue statements certified by an independent certified public accountant or CPA. We reported this in the ETI's audit and found the same during this audit. The airport's external auditors noted in 2022 that the airport's reliance on self-certifications -certif of concession revenue increased the risk of underreported revenue. They recommended establishing additional controls to ensure contract compliance, such as revenue reports audited by CPAs. We are pleased to hear that the airport is reinstating this CPA certification in 2024. To address the risks related to deductions, we offer five recommendations beginning on report page 22. Recommendation 1.3 asks the airport to develop and document explicit criteria for allowable and unallowable deductions in a central document such as the concessions handbook. The airport agreed to implement this by June 30th of 2024. Recommendation 1.4 asks the airport to develop and implement procedures to review and verify concessionaires' revenues and deductions to ensure they are complete, accurate, and allowable. The airport agreed to this by February 28th of 2025 Recommendation 1.5 asks the airport to consider reinstating a requirement to have a certified public accountant prepare and certify concessionaires' annual statements. As mentioned in their opening remarks, this will be implemented January 1, 2024. Recommendation 1.6 asks the airport to determine a formalized way to enhance oversight and monitoring of concessionaires' revenue. Such a tool should allow the airport to have real-time access to concessionaires' sales data and ensure accurate reporting. The airport agreed to this with an implementation of February 28, 2025. And lastly, recommendation 1.7 asked the airport to calculate and collect rent owed based on the amount of unallowable deductions Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe subtracted from its reported revenue. The airport agreed to implement this by June 30th of 2024. This concludes our discussion of subfinding two. I'll pause for any questions or comments. Any additional comments from the airport? No. No. We're in agreement. That's great. Comments from the committee, questions? Um, I'll go ahead and hand off to Jordan now. All right, Jordan. Thank you, Ben. Beginning on page 24 of the report, subfinding three says the airport did not ensure Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe paid rent on time and did not charge interest owed to the city for late payments. As previously discussed, according to the contract, the minimum annual guaranteed rent payment is due on the first of the month and the percentage rent payment is due on the 10th of the month. During our audit period, the airport issued 62 invoices to Woody Creek for their rent obligations. Of these invoices, Woody Creek paid 61 or 98% late according to contract requirements. 
Most of the late payments were made within the permitted grace period of five days, but five late payments exceeded this period and should have accrued a nominal amount of interest. Due to differing interpretations of the contract, the airport believes only two of these invoices were past the grace period. Even though the airport agreed any late payments were a violation of the contract, none of the payment issues were escalated to the contract administrator. In addition to the contract, concessionaires are required to follow payment guidelines including the concessionaire handbook. We found that these guidelines were unclear, vague, and outdated, and because of this, Woody Creek paid rent invoices through the city's online payment web portal, which was designed to allow residents to pay bills or fees more conveniently. According to the airport, concessionaire rent payments using the web portal were problematic because the invoices were often available in the portal late. Well, the airport's finance staff generates the invoices for Woody Creek's guaranteed rent by the first of each month. They often generate the invoices for the percentage of monthly sales already after that second payment is due on the 10th of the month. These invoices are late because the airport must first receive the monthly revenue reports, which are also due on the 10th, from concessionaires. This process means that Woody Creek would be unable to pay their rent on time using the web portal. We also found the use of the web portal for rent payments carries other potential risks for the airport, such as transaction fees on payments by credit cards. In addition to the handbook, we found that other airport concessions policies and procedures do not adequately define contract monitoring tasks. For example, the concessions administrator policy includes procedures for a compliance review that should have identified Woody Creek's late payments. But this policy does not adequately define who should what should prompt the reviews or how often they should be done. As a result, no compl comprehensive compliance reviews were conducted for Woody Creek. According to the airport, late payments are tracked on prompt concessionaire accounts only when vendors are late by 90 days or more, or when an account is classified as chronically late. When asked how finance staff determine a concessionaire is chronically late, they gave us no specific or written criteria, only an explanation that chronically late is an account with continued problems or patterns of the concessionaire purposely not paying. Because this criterion was not properly documented, Woody Creek's 98% late payments were not considered chronically late by the airport. We begin our discussion of interest on late payments on page 27 of the report. As we first reported in 2019, the airport does not have the staff nor technology to calculate and charge interest for concessionaire accounts. At the time of our 2019 audit, the airport agreed to ensure their revenue management system, PropWorks, could charge interest but disagreed with manually charging interest in the interim. During this audit of Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe, Finance managers maintained disagreement with manually calculating interest and said the PropWorks calculation system may not be fully functional until the end of 2024. To address these risks, we made five recommendations beginning on page 29 of the report. Recommendation 1.8 asks the airport to encourage Woody Creek to pay on time according to the due dates in its contract. The agency agreed to implement this by April 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.9 asks the airport to explore feasible opportunities for automatic reporting of vendors' late payments so issues can be identified and resolved more quickly. The agency agreed to implement this by September 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.10 asks the airport to review and update its policies and procedures to ensure payment guidelines are clear, accurate, and up-to-date. The agency agreed to implement this by April 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.11 asks the airport to work with all concessionaires to ensure the requirements for when and how to pay invoices are communicated. The agency agreed to implement this by April 30th, 2024. Recommendation 1.12 asks the airport to ensure the process for calculating and charging interest is included in the PropWorks reimplementation. The agency agreed to implement this by September 30th, 2024. That concludes our presentation on subfinding three. I will now pause to allow comments or questions from the agency or audit committee members. Comments from the airport? 
yes, first of all, we, we agree uh, again with all the recommendations, but we do have a couple of comments. I'm gonna ask uh, Ms. Heidi O'Neill uh, to speak to those. Thank you for pointing out those uh, deficiencies and things that we need to improve on. We appreciate it. Um, just to get a little bit, little bit of perspective, um, Skyport Holdings over the last three years, meaning 2023, 2022, and 2021, we billed them $10.6 million um, in rents. We have collected all of that with the exception of about $500, which we're trying to figure out why they haven't paid $500. All of those payments have been made within the grace period with the exception of the couple that you have pointed out. So while we do agree that our vendors, our concessionaires should be paying on time based on their contract terms, um, the, the reason that this is happening with Skyport or has been happening is because they are paying through the portal. And as you have noted, um, those invoices that go on the portal, the advanced rents could be posted on the first of the month. So if they don't pay it until the second, then they are late, technically. The same thing with the percentage rents. Um, we strive to get those invoices uh, to, the, to the concessionaires as quickly as possible, but frankly, their contract terms do say that they don't need an invoice to pay. They need to pay their advance rents and their percentage rents when they are due. So we are gonna remind uh, Skyport that they need to do this. Um, that, I think that's my only comment. But I do wanna point out that we, we manage thousands of accounts at the airport. And um, because of the fact that Skyport actually has paid over 99.9% .9 of their invoices over the last three years. That is why we consider that account in good shape, and I'm putting that in quotes. Thank you. Yes. So uh, one of the recommendations, the response includes the implementation of PropWorks. And I don't know how many years I've been hearing about the implementation of PropWorks. Do you have an update for us at this point? Yes, I do. So we, uh, PropWorks is, um, we are implementing, re-implementing, we call it a refresh, but we have been re-implementing PropWorks for the purpose of not just accounts receivable, billing, um, and those functions, but also to capture more information airport-wide. It's, it's kind of a, it's a system that gives us the ability to really track a lot of data. Um, when it was implemented back in, I believe, 2016, 2017, um, perhaps there wasn't as much foresight in terms of what it could do and what it needed to do. So several years ago, we did take that action to take a look at the system and see what needed to happen in order for it to be re-implemented. Re Part of that re-implementation involved bringing in revenue streams to bill in PropWorks that were not being billed in PropWorks. So that's what's taken the majority of the time, is to get those revenue streams in the system so that we can have a fully integrated accounts receivable function. The last piece of it is to bring in customer payment activity. As you can imagine, that's a large scope as well. So that right now has been in process over the last year, and it does take a long time to get these things mapped out and programmatically put in one by one. We are targeting towards the middle of the summer to hopefully have that functionality ready to go. Once that functionality is ready to go, we'll cut over from Workday, and at that point, we're gonna test for a while, make sure everything's working right, and then we will flip the switch on being able to charge interest, because PropWorks will properly calculate interest based on the contract terms, unlike Workday at this point. Excellent, thank you. Um, when you get there, 
will Workday be fed some information or? Yes. What becomes the system or the books of record for the city and county of Denver with respect to the airport enterprise fund? So Workday will continue to be the books, the system of uh, the SOP, the system of record, SOR, I guess, for, um, for all of our financial data. Um, and the reason for that is because our general ledger lives in, in Workday. And obviously, you need your general ledger in order to produce financial statements, so that's where it's going to be driven from. PropWorks will be a subsidiary system that will allow us to have an integrated accounts receivable function. Um, and it will house all of the detailed information that, have, that has to do with accounts receivable, so your billings, your customer payments, um, and other types of transaction, associated transactions. PropWorks is going to feed daily journal entries um, into Workday in a summarized format, so basically debits and credits. And that will then inform our system of record what the transactions are that have occurred on a daily, monthly, annual basis. We will have to look into two systems in order to get that detail. So if detail is needed on customer receivables, we will need to be looking in PropWorks. And that's part of that development as well. We have to have the right reports in order to be able to do that. Got it. Thank you. Should we continue? Thank you. Beginning on page 31 of the report, subfinding 4, says the airport's outdated utility fee could be allowing Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe to pay a fair amount. Woody Creek's contract requires the concessionaire to pay for all water, electricity, and gas used. We found no issues with payments for gas, as each concessionaire pays directly for its own gas utilities. However, we learned that during the audit period, the airport billed Woody Creek at a flat rate of $1,000 for electricity at the main concession space and $60 for electricity at a separate storage location. This flat utility fee was last recalculated in 2017 when the airport used a formula that relied on average utility costs from 2010 through 2015. According to rate history from Excel Energy, base electricity rates in Colorado have increased by 55% from 2014 to 2023, highlighting the fact that the airport's utility calculation is outdated and insufficient. Further, the airport has never charged concessionaires for their water usage, which is estimated to cost the airport $150,000 in extra costs for all concessionaires per year, according to an internal review conducted by airport staff. Limiting the airport's ability to accurately calculate and charge concessionaires for the utility usage are the meters installed by some concessionaires during their build-out, which are now outdated. According to the airport staff, none of the meters are capable of tying into a central reporting system that would automatically record usage and manual meter reading of the more than 185 concession locations is not practical. In 2019, the airport began a project to link concessionaires' meters to a central reporting system as part of their overall energy plan. However, this project was suspended at the onset of COVID-19 pandemic and, as of the end of 2023, was not still restarted. And, as of 2021, fewer than half of the concessionaires had water meters. Our 2022 report on Itai's Cafe also found the concessionaire was being charged a flat electricity fee calculated using the same formula as Woody Creek. As a result, the airport implemented a pilot program to monitor and bill Itai's electricity usage throughout 2023. The airport said deployment of the usage-based method is complex and may take multiple years to implement among the rest of the concessionaires. The pilot also only monitored electricity usage with no plan for monitoring accurate water consumption. To address these risks, we made one recommendation beginning on page 33 of the report. Recommendation 1.13 asks the airport to determine the most effective and efficient way to accurately calculate utility usage for electricity and water 
for Woody Creek Bakery and Cafe and adjust billing as necessary. The agency agreed to implement this by September 1st, 2024. This concludes our presentation, and now we are opening the floor for comments and questions from the agency or audit committee members. Thank you. Any additional comments from the airport? No. No. Thank you. Lorraine? I have one, one question, um, uh, just more out of curiosity. I'm sure we've probably, uh, many of us have been in airports uh, late at, other airports late at night when there were no concessions available, and I've noticed, I haven't experienced that at DIA, and I was just curious as to whether you, do you have in the contract process uh, a requirement uh, for hours of operation, or is that just market driven? We do have a requirement in each contract for hours of operation, and we monitor those as well. So, just curious. Thank you. So I have, I mean, I guess I'd call it a philosophical question about concessionaire, the concessions. I mean, you're accounted for in an airport enterprise fund, which to me means that your revenues will cover the expenditures. You're reducing the rent from 18% to 16%. You're allowing the deductions from rent to, to really be unlimited is there, which is kind of contrary to, you know, like a, a regular business enterprise of maximizing revenues and minimizing expenses, all, you know, in the best interest of the shareholders. We don't have that environment here, obviously. Um, but is there a general philosophy about what, what the concessions in general or the individual concessions should be earning? Are there targets for their earnings? This year, you're going to make it up on volume if your volume continues the way it has been. But are there targets in terms of individual individual concessionaires? Well, I'm glad you asked about um, the particular percentage rent with Woody Creek going from 18 to 16 percent. Woody Creek was part of a batch of PVC agreements that recently went through council. Um, the airport, uh, we did obviously discontinued the PVC program as part of that. We honored the awards that were already um, extended to concessionaires. That's the background. This batch of PVC agreements, in an effort to create consistency and um, really right-size the program, we had everyone do the same rents, which is 16% for food and 18% for alcohol for that particular group. Why? Because that's the market rate. That's what we could get if we released an RFP. The 18%, um, going from 18% is a one-off in that group. There are some that we moved up significantly, and that one, Woody Creek, in this audit, that went down by 2% points. So that's an effort, that's an overall effort for us to create consistency, transparency, and fairness in the concessions program overall. But is there a target? For each concessionaire, there is a target, and in right now that of, target is sixteen percent. In terms of profit to the enterprise fund, well, absolutely. Um, a concessionaires make millions of dollars. The target right now is sixteen percent for food, um, and it depends, right? Each one hundred and eighty-five locations. It depends on how big is the location. Is it food and beverage? Is it retail services? Right? There are so many nuances, but of course there are targets. I don't think I'm asking the question well, but I, th I think you might be asking, is there a dollar target that we establish and we don't have a dollar target 
we, we have our percentage of rent, which we consider fair market value, but each location will have, and each concourse will have a different passenger mix, different passengers' behaviors. So um, we don't say, you're here and we expect you to make $6 million. We don't do that. Okay. Thank you. Usha has a... But I wanted to present the observations that I have made during our audits. Um, so there's uh, the discounts that are given to employees. It's uh, under one and a half percent of the overall gross revenues that they are reporting to us as part of the analysis that I have done. That's what we have observed. And we also benchmarked a lot of um, few other airports, and almost everybody is allowing this. And the only one airport that has a dollar limit has about one percent, I think of the total gross revenues. That's the only example I have seen. And uh, we are definitely uh, exploring that option of maybe uh, applying a percentage limit on the overall. But we are also at the point where we have so much staffing shortages at the airport, and it's so remote uh, for people to go out and buy something that's more affordable. And you all know that uh, the concessions do charge a little bit more than street pricing at the airport. So. Um, that seemed reasonable and considerate for the employees to get the 10% discount or uh, their employee, concession employees getting a little bit more discount than that. And I have a quick comment. So I think on an overall, what you're asking is, do we try to maximize our non-aeronautical revenue? Aeronautical revenue is a cost recovery proposition, right, at the airport. Uh, concessions is considered non-aeronautical revenue. And yes, the answer is we are looking at all of those different lines of non-aeronautical revenue to try to maximize those amounts so that we can add more to our um, funds, frankly, to continue to ex expand the airport. Um, my second question has to do with the staffing shortage. Is that a function of a tight labor market or are you not able to fill those positions? Um, I, I think coming off COVID, we're still trying to determine um, what the challenges are around uh, recruiting and retention. Uh, the airport environment is a different environment. There's background checks that are uh, required and that sort of thing. But um, we are constantly making a push and extending our outreach uh, in terms of recruiting uh, to all parts of the region and the country. So we'll we'll continue to do that. Okay, thank you. Any other comments from the committee? Thank you very much, I appreciate your time this morning and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. All right, All right our next agenda item is a briefing on the self-funded health plan. <clears throat>
think you and I are All right, welcome back. Um, welcome to our Office of Human Resources. And Thank you. Patrick, do you want to introduce the team and um, any opening comments? And then, Heather, I'll ask you to do the same. All right, real quick, why, why this audit is important, the wrecks that this team found. So shifting to this self-insurance model, there, there could be a lot of advantages, right? Cost savings is a big one. With that, you know, comes cash flow improvement, possibly uh, flexibility of coverage, tailoring that coverage more towards the city's needs, and then maybe a little bit more control over the claims process. So those are all advantages. Um, the recs that this team came up with, why they're impactful, is those recommendations help ensure that the city's going to maximize the advantages that it's shooting for. So that's why it's impactful. With that, I'll turn it over to Julianne to introduce the team. Thank you, Pat. Uh, my name is Julianne Mann, and I'm the lead auditor on the self-funded health plan audit. With me today is Danny Pluwich, who is the audit senior on this project. I also want to mention two team members who were integral during this audit, but couldn't be here with us today. Um, namely, Amy Barnes, who was the audit manager on this project, and Summer Sargent, our audit intern. Um, with that, I also want to thank Heather Britton and her team for the help and um, cooperation during this audit. It was immensely, um, feel grateful for that. So thank you very much. Um, and with that, I'll hand it over to you. Sure. Um, so I'm Heather Britton, and I'm the Director of Benefits and Wellness for the Office of Human Resources. I do want to start by saying that um, I am actually very grateful to the auditor's office because um, I've been in this role for a long time, and um, the city just became self-funded in 2020. Um, for our medical plan, and it is a prevailing practice. And if it was not for the auditor's office and their work and their recommendation to move to self-funding, I don't believe we would be there yet. So I really do appreciate that. Um, with me today is Ann Carter, and Ann Ca Carter is the supervisor of the benefit team, and also Kathy Nesbitt, of course, our executive director, and Carla Anthony, um, who is our deputy director with OHR. Thank you, and I want to thank you all again for recognizing that we made those recommendations and I think in the rates we can see today that it, that is working as intended I think I don't know what I I think I saw a five dollar increase per month in my um, uh, medical contribution so good job let's continue thank you. all right the background begins on page one of the report in 2020, the city changed the medical plan offered by United Healthcare to a self-funded health plan. This self-funded or self-insured health plan allows the city to provide health insurance directly to employees while paying providers, such as doctors and hospitals, directly for medical claims acting as its own health care insurer. This change placed all administrative responsibilities on the Office of Human Resources to ensure the plan operates effectively and that employees participating in it do not lose coverage or pay more than they should. Continuing on page one, the Office of Human Resources serves city agencies with employee programs and initiatives to attract, develop, and retain an engaged and high-performing workforce that delivers on Denver's vision. The Office's benefits and wellness team handle city-sponsored benefits such as medical, dental, and vision health insurance programs. 
The city uses United Healthcare and Kaiser Permanente as their insurance carriers to provide medical health plans to employees. United Healthcare is the only carrier that offers a self-funded health plan. As seen in figure one on page two, about 10,530 city employees were covered under two health insurance plans as of January 1st, 2023. Out of the total, 4,860 employees were insured under United Healthcare self-funded plan at that time. Starting on the top of page three, self-insured employers must be able to pay for all claims of employees and dependents participating in the health plan. To lower this risk, self-insured plans come with stop-loss insurance, which limits the amount the employer would have to pay for unusually large claims. Self-funded employers also typically hire a third-party administrator to manage the plan, meaning the outside administrator pays providers such as doctors for claims with approval of the employer and helps set up the health plan and implement it. The city's total monthly cost of a self-funded plan include only administrative fees to its third-party administrator, fees for the stop-loss insurance, and payments for employee claims during the period during the period, the city has an opportunity to save money when claim costs are lower than expected. In contrast, in a fully insured health plan, the city purchases healthcare directly from the insurance company. These plans use a one-size-fits-all approach because the benefits offered are more rigid. In addition, the city carries no risk because the insurance carrier takes on all the risks involved with paying claims. For page five, the Office of Human Resources works with the city's Employee Health Insurance Committee, Lockton, and United Healthcare to ensure appropriate administration and function of the self-funded plan. Each party has its own responsibilities, such as the Office of Human Resources submits payments for all plan benefits, administers the plan, and designs the type of coverage employees can get each year. The Employee Health Insurance Committee is authorized to advise the Office of Human Resources about the health insurance needs of the city's employees. The insurance benefit consultant locked in acts as an advisor for all insurances covering the city's career service, police, sheriff, and fire employees and its retirees. United Healthcare, the city's third party administrator, provides the health pro program services and stop loss insurance for the city's self funded health plan. As noted on page six of the report, all full-time and part-time city and county of Denver employees are eligible for employee benefits. Employees can also enroll eligible dependents on their health insurance plans, such as a spouse, children up to age 26, and children of any age who have a disability. All employees enrolling a dependent must provide supporting documentation. The type of required documentation is listed in the middle of page six. To ensure the Office of Human Resources administers the city health benefits properly, city ordinance requires the office to conduct an audit of eligible dependents at least once within every five years. As described on page seven, a service provider report provides an organization with insight on whether its contractor or service organization had designed effective processes and procedures for its operations. This kind of evaluation of a contractor's process and procedures is vital for organizations like the city because it tells them about gaps in their service providers' processes. Having this knowledge allows organizations to ensure their own processes are properly designed to accommodate and compensate for any noted deficiencies. On page seven, the process and procedures are listed which the Office of Human Resources must have in place to complement United Healthcare's claims administration process. The audit scope and objective can be found on page 28. 
The objective of this audit was to determine whether the Office of Human Resources manages the city's self-funded health plan by ensuring the data of insured employees and dependents is complete and accurate in the city system of record, by sufficiently monitoring third-party processes, and by, by having complete policies and procedures to ensure effective operations. The scope of our audit included assessing the operational effectiveness of how the Office of Human Resources manages the city's self-funded health plan with United Healthcare by reviewing and analyzing the office's policies and procedures and data of employees and dependents who participate in the plan. The time period we reviewed was from January 1, 2020 through August 1, 2023. This concludes the background section of the report. With that, I'll go ahead and open the floor for any questions or comments before we begin dis discussing our findings and recommendations. Any questions, comments? No? Let's continue. Finding one, beginning on page eight of the report, states that the Office of Human Resources is not effectively overseeing the city's self-funded health plan. Finding one is broken up into three sub-findings. For subfinding one, we found that the Office of Human Resources does not verify dependence eligibility as city ordinance requires. As noted on page nine, city ordinance requires the office to conduct an audit of eligible dependents at least once every five years. However, the last audit of employees' dependents was completed in December 2018, and as of December 2023, the office had not contracted with an external audit firm to conduct the next required audit of employees' dependents. Because five years have passed, the Office of Human Resources is failing to comply with the city ordinance requirement, ensuring that only eligible dependents receive health care benefits. Changes in a dependent status can happen at any time whenever a city employee experiences a qualified life event, such as getting divorced. The city's process to verify dependents' eligibility checks only for newly enrolled dependents. As stated on page nine, the office finds that a dependent eligibility audit is not cost effective and creates lower employee morale. Shown in figure four at the top of page 10, across the city's health plans, dependents make up nearly half of all participants. An average of 20,175 participants were insured by Kaiser Permanente and United Healthcare's plans from 2020 through 2023. Out of that average, 10,336 participants were dependents of city employees. Because dependents are a majority of participants in the city's health plans, verifying the eligibility can have a significant financial impact. As stated at the bottom of page 10, because the Office of Human Resources is not complying with city ordinance, we reviewed samples of employees' dependents to assess for ourselves whether they were eligible. In our own analysis, we obtained the population of 6,800 city employees and their 3,000 dependents who were insured by the self-funded plan from January 1st, 2020 through August 1st, 2023. We then verified the documentation on file for a random sample of dependents to ensure eligibility. We also looked at instances of dual coverage since an individual cannot be insured as both a dependent and an employee at the same time. In addition, we sought to identify instances when dependents should have appropriate documentation for the child dependent's physical or mental disability. Lastly, we reviewed a random sample of employees who made changes to their coverage during the year to ensure changes were for qualified life events. During our work, we identified missing documentation for dependents with disabilities and identified some individuals who were covered as both a dependent and an employee. 
As noted on page 12 of the report, the Office of Human, Re Human Resources stated that the city's system of record, Workday, has limited functionality to review dependence documentation and check for instances of dual coverage. The office also traditionally relied on notifications from its insurance companies when duplicate records were identified during the enrollment process. Additionally, for the instances of incomplete eligibility documentation for child dependents over 26 years old with a physical or mental disability, we found this was due to a loophole in Workday that allowed city employees to make this, these enrollment selections without approval from human resources staff. Therefore, we make the following recommendations to the Office of Human Resources. Recommendation 1.1, found on page 13 of the report, states, to ensure compliance with the city ordinance that requires an external audit of dependents eligibility every five years, the Office of Human Resources should, as soon as possible, follow the city's procurement process and hire an external audit firm qualified to assess the eligibility of all dependents on the city's health plans. The office should then take necessary steps to resolve any issues noted by the audit to ensure only eligible dependents receive benefits from the city's self-funded health plan. The office agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2024. Recommendation 1.2, found on page 13 of the report, states, the Office of Human Resources should develop, document, and implement procedures to regularly review the eligibility of employee dependents, especially in instances where automated processes are limited in the city system or record workday. The office procedures should, at a minimum, ensure the city obtains all required documentation from employees about their dependents and keep those records in workday, including documentation to show the disability status of applicable dependents. Work with the city's technology services agency or other agencies as necessary to obtain data from Workday about the employees and dependents participating in the self city self-funded health plan. Use employee participant and dependent data in Workday to regularly check for instances of dual coverage where an individual is receiving benefits as both an employee and a dependent and document the results of the review and the actions to resolve any ineligible, ineligible dependents found. The office agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 30th, 2024. That concludes the finding one of finding one of the report. With that, I'll go ahead and open the floor for any questions or comments before we begin discussing our next sub-findings. Any additional comments from the Office of Human Resources? I don't have any more comments, no. Thank you. Okay. Questions from the committee? Let's continue. Cool. Thank you. Now I'll turn it over to Danny. Thank you. For sub-finding two on page 14 of the report, we found the Office of Human Resources has not reviewed United Healthcare's service provider report for potential gaps. During our audit, we learned that human resources officials were unaware the service provider reports existed, what the reports contained, and the importance of this information. Because the city hired United Healthcare to administer the city's self-funded health plan, the Office of Human Resources has a duty to monitor how effectively United Healthcare's claims administration processes operate. As noted on page 15 of the report, a review of the service provider report also enables human resources managers to identify problems with United Healthcare's claims processes. It also enables the office to compensate for any potential problems or gaps identified during the review. 
By not knowing the contents of the service provider report, the city cannot effectively monitor and respond to protect city employees and their dependents from possible deficiencies within United Healthcare's claim process. I will now read the two recommendations for finding one, subfinding two, after which I will pause for questions and comments. Our recommendations for subfinding two can be found starting on the bottom of page 15 and continuing on to page 16 of the report. Recommendation 1.3 states, the Office of Human Resources should obtain training on how to read and implement the contents and results of United Healthcare Service Provider Report. This training should enable the office to identify the processes and procedures that complement United Healthcare's claims administration process, identify controlled deficiencies and gaps in <coughs> United Healthcare's claims administration processes, and understand what processes the city needs to implement to accommodate and compensate for those deficiencies and gaps. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of June 28, 2024. Recommendation 1.4 states, the Office of Human Resources should annually obtain and review United Healthcare Service Provider Report. The office should develop a policy and procedure to ensure this task is completed every year and it should identify the staff member who should perform this duty. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of March 29, 2024. I will now pause for questions and comments. Are there any comments? I do not have any comments. I just have a question to clarify a little bit. So you're recommending that the, that the um, Office of Human Resources review the provider report from United Healthcare, mm -hmm. but that doesn't include Lockton's work, does it? No, it does not. So isn't there an issue of what Lockton's actually doing? Um, and we, we get into some of Lockton's responsibilities in the next subfinding. Um, they're okay, they're processing more of the financial information for the health plan. The service provider report uh, contains more on the specific processes for United Healthcare going through the claims administration okay. process. Because yeah. I thought I read in here at this in this section that that the office thought that Lockton was monitoring United. Oh, that's in the next section. Yes. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. Let's continue. Okay. Towards the bottom of page mm -hmm. 16 of the report, subfinding three states, we found the Office of Human Resources does not monitor work performed by third-party contractors. Moving to page 17 of the report, the city's executive order number eight requires agencies to monitor and verify the work prepared by third parties to ensure they are following the terms of their contracts. The city's insurance benefits consultant Lockton was hired to assist the Office of Human Resources in maintaining the self-funded health plan, presenting health plan information to the Employee Health Insurance Committee, helping the city comply with federal and state requirements, and analyzing the financial impact of changes to the health plan, including analyzing paid claims and how the city's medical plans are used. When asked what procedures they use to review Lockton's results, officials said they have none and rely on Lockton's expertise and resources to produce accurate results. Additionally, we learned officials do not have a good understanding of the work Lockton performs, specifically related to its review procedures for United Healthcare's performance guarantees. On page 18 of the report, United Healthcare guarantees specific performance metrics for its contracted responsibilities and assesses itself each year on how well it is meeting those performance metrics. 
When asked how they verify the results, officials stated they do not review United Healthcare's self-reported performance guarantees because Lockton performs a review. However, we found this was not the case. Towards the bottom of page 18 of the report, we discovered human resources officials were confusing United Healthcare's claims operation and customer service performance guarantees with the metrics Lockton frequently reviews regarding pharmacies. On the bottom of page 18 and continuing on to page 19 of the report, we learn that United Healthcare processes claims by determining what benefits apply to a city employee who has sought medical care, the amounts covered by the self-funded health plan and the amount due out of pocket from the employee and performs an internal review when an employee appeals a claim. However, we learn that human resources managers are unaware of the status and results of United Healthcare's claim appeals processes. Officials were also unaware of any requests for United Healthcare to re-review an employee's claim for medical care. But we obtained evidence from United Healthcare showing that internal reviews are done often. For example, from January 2023 through July 2023, United Healthcare reviewed 274 appeals from city and county of Denver employees. Of those 274 appeal cases, 81 were overturned or partially overturned. At the top of page 20 of the report, we found that the contract with United Healthcare allows the city to hire an external auditor to perform a medical claims audit. Leading practices say an external auditor can review claims data and performance guarantees during a medical claims audit. Therefore, a medical claims audit would allow the Office of Human Resources to monitor United Healthcare's contractual duties, assess whether claims are being processed per the health plan, and possibly uncover root causes of process errors. In the middle of page 20, we see that officials stated they intend to conduct an audit in 2025 so that the collective data from 2020 through 2024 can be reviewed. But this would violate the contract terms, which say data only from the year the audit takes place and the prior year can be used. A formal needs assessment can assist human resources in determining whether a medical claims audit should be conducted, when it would happen, and what data and processes would be reviewed. On page 21 of the report, we found that human resources lack of oversight can result in city employees over or underpaying for their medical claims, benefits being used by ineligible employees or dependents, employees receiving inadequate customer service from United Healthcare, or the city overpaying for services or not receiving penalties it may be owed when United Healthcare falls short on its contractually required performance. I will read the two recommendations for finding one subfinding three before pausing for questions or comments. On the bottom of page 21 and continuing onto page 22 of the report, recommendation 1.5 says, the Office of Human Resources should design and complete a formal and documented needs assessment to evaluate whether it should pursue a medical claims audit, and if so, how often and for what scope of time in compliance with its contract with United Healthcare. The assessment should include a risk assessment of third-party processes, and it should serve as the foundation for managers' annual decision-making on whether to seek a medical claims audit. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of December 31st, 2024. 
Recommendation 1.6 states, the Office of Human Resources should establish and implement policies and procedures for how it will monitor locked-ins and United Healthcare's procedures related to the self-funded health plan, so the office can ensure health plan decisions are made using correct information. The department agreed with the recommendation with an implementation date of April 30th, 2024. I will now pause for comments and questions related to subfinding three. Any additional comments from Heather? <coughs> Frank? One quick question. Um, are, are, does your office do surveys of city employees on their interactions with any of the, with United Healthcare or any of the third, third parties? We do not do surveys, no. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the question. The question was if we do surveys of employees' interactions with United Healthcare okay. or any third party. Okay. We do not. I think uh, Kathy has a question. Um, Mr. Otter, may I? Please, yes. Thank you. Um, I know that we've um, negotiated or at least um, agreed to the implementation date, implementation date of December of 2024. Uh, given our financial situation with the city, I'm wondering if there's an opportunity for us um, in the coming weeks to potentially look at a different date that may be in the first quarter of 2025, if that might be amenable. I think our practice is really to wait till the implementation date that you've assigned here in the report. And we'd ask you if you're ready for us to review how you've implemented. And if at that point you still need another quarter, I think we could agree upon that. That okay, wouldn't great. be Thank a problem. Um, could, could you talk a little more about this partnership with a purchaser organization? I'm not sure what that means. Sure. So Denver is a member of the Purchaser Business Group on Health, PBGH. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, a group of um, like-minded individuals like myself, benefit administrators, but generally from larger companies. Um, uh, and like CalPERS is part of it and um, State of Washington. And um, we are starting a new process because federal law has changed. And now as benefit purchasers, we can see more claims data from, in, from hospitals, where before we could not see claims data. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't accessible to us, and it was also not accessible to the purchaser, meaning the employee or the enrollee. Uh, so now we are, I'm working with them to start a um, sort of claims bank, mm -hmm. so where we will all put in our claims into one um, bank, uh, and it will be managed by a third party and that third party will then help um, us just monitor claims, see where our costs are going, mm. but also do an audit of those claims. Um, it, it would be a small subsection of the claims. Um, but it is new and different, um, that something we're trying with this purchaser business group on health. Interesting, thank um, you. I'm surprised that's allowed under HIPAA. It, it will, any identifying information that is restricted under HIPAA will be scrubbed. So it will just be um, claims information, where the claim occurred, how much it cost, um, but the not identifiable, not to identifiable the yes, okay. to the person. That makes sense. So is the idea that, you know, if somebody had their tonsils taken out, the maybe in Denver they paid more than they did in California or? Exactly, we wanna know if they got their tonsils taken out, would it cost more at UC Health or would it cost more at Swedish? Or 
would, was there a complication? And what did the complication cost? And who does it better? So those are the kind of things we want to look at. That would be great data to have. Wouldn't yeah. it? Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Should we continue? Yep. I'll turn it back over to Julianne for finding two. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Finding two, beginning on page 23 of the report, states that the Office of Human Resources lacks documented guidance <clears throat> to effectively support the city's self-funded health plan. As noted on page 23, the United Healthcare's annual service provider report says the Office of Human Resources has a responsibility to support the service provider in the claims administration process. However, we noted that human resources lacks adequate guidance for four of these responsibilities. Per page 24, for the responsibility of review and approval of claim fund invoices, we noted that the Office of Human Resources had two documents describing this claim funding process, but only one of them was finalized as of September 2023. And neither of these documents had adequate detail to ensure new or existing human resources staff can follow the process effectively. Human resource officials said the employee turnover contributed to the differences in the procedural documents. As stated on the bottom of page 24 of the report, the Office of Human Resources also has a duty to process any changes to employees' health benefits in a timely manner and communicate those changes to United Healthcare before they take effect. We learned that the office typically approves the changes and communicates them through email to United Healthcare. However, this process is informal and undocumented. As described on page 25, Human Resources uses United Healthcare's online portal to manage the city's self-funded health plan. This platform gives office staff access to invoices for administrative fees, access to files of insured employees to verify eligibility, and access to financial data used by Lockton for its analysis. When asked, officials could not give us a written policies or process that identified what specific user access a human resources staff should have for the portal. On page 25 of the report, we found that as of September 2023, Human Resources had not finalized a policy on how to address coverage for city employees who leave their jobs. Officials said the merger of the Office's Benefits and Wellness team with the Department of Public Safety's Benefits Division required updating existing policies and procedures, which delayed finalizing these updates because officials are still working to combine the two teams' procedures. Federal guidance emphasizes the importance of well-documented policies and procedures to help guarantee the accuracy of information, minimize fraud, and enhance accountability and effectiveness. As described on page 25 of the report, not having documented processes that are approved and implemented can lead to inefficiencies and inconsistencies <coughs> in managing how the city funds its portion of employees' medical claims. Therefore, for the health plan to operate effectively, the Office of Human Resources must have written and approved policies describing how to fully fund the city's payments for employees' medical claims, properly authorize city funds for these payments, communicate any changes to the plan with United Healthcare, remove coverage for employees who no longer work for the city and county of Denver, and review which human resources staff should have access to the United Healthcare's online portal. Therefore, recommendation 2.1 on page 26 of our report states that in addition to its existing documents, the Office of Human Resources should develop, implement, and finalize policies and procedures that provide the sufficient level of detail described in federal standards for internal controls and ensure funding requests are properly authorized and reviewed for completeness, 
that changes to benefit plans are implemented and communicated in a timely manner and with sufficient advance notice before the changes take effect, that a staff member is designate, designated as being responsible for granting human resources staff access to United Healthcare's online portal and that only authorized human resources staff have access and formal, former employees are removed from the city health, city's health insurance plans in a timely manner. The Office of Human Resources agrees with this recommendation with an implementation date of April 30th, 2024. <clears throat> that concludes our presentation. I will now open the floor for any questions or comments related to this finding. Any additional comments from OHR? No. Questions, comments from the committee? Well, thank you very much. Um, I think this is a successful program and you know, one of the things in creating a program like this, you have to fund reserves, uh, which it was probably a, something that needed to be done, of course, before it got started. Does Lockton give you feedback on the adequacy of the reserves going forward? Going forward, um, yes, they give us um, feedback on the adequacy of the, the reserves, and they also help us establish it. Um, when you establish reserves, you have a, a choice of being very aggressive, meaning you want a significant amount of reserves or, mm -hmm. or maybe not as aggressive. Denver chose to be fairly aggressive in the amount of reserves we wanted to accumulate right away. So um, I feel like they're efficient, um, but we do look at them every year when I, we set our rates for the current year. Um, to ensure that we, it, to, to make sure if, if we need to increase reserves that current rates reflect it. Have we needed to increase reserves? No. Excellent. Yeah. Um, we actually went self-funded 2020. Right. And we all know what happened in 2020. It was actually a very good year to go self-funded because um, claims went down. We're, we're much less than we expected mm -hmm. them to be because um, all of the pre-scheduled things like hips and knees and all of that didn't happen. We're making up for it now, um, but it was a good year to go self-funded. Well, I hope all the employees of the city and county of Denver recognize the great work you're doing on their behalf, so thank, thank you. you. That concludes that briefing. I would note to the committee we have had 100% agreement on all of our recommendations today. <laughs> Uh, next up is our biannual audit committee update of our analytics team. Chris, do you want to introduce the team and maybe an outline for your presentation? Sure. So we're providing an update on how we use analytics for the office to identify potential risk. Um, we do this on a semi-annual basis. The team is comprised of Daniel Summers, Kaylee Smiley, Heather Berger, and Chris Purdy.
So the agenda for our presentation includes four areas. We'll first discuss results for our continuous audits. Then we'll provide an update on the status of several internal risk projects. Next, we will summarize the work we perform for audit teams. And lastly, we'll share updates on how we provide internal training for staff and several opportunities for the wider audit community. So our office uses continuing, continuous monitoring to look at the city's financial and process data throughout the year. It allows us to monitor potential risk and determine if any action should be taken, such as performing a full audit. We share our results internally with the auditor's office leadership. This slide summarizes the analytics and number of records we looked at for this period. In total, we looked at just over one million records. This update period, we focus mainly on the city's financial data, covering areas such as purchase card spending and purchase orders. We also performed an internal risk project, looking at contract information held in the city's contract management system, known as Jagger. I'll now pass it off to Daniel to get us started on our continuous updates. Thanks, Chris. In May last year, we published the report on citywide technology purchases. This analytic, which is based on that work, monitors purchase cards to look for instances of technology-related spending at risk of violating the city's executive order number 18. We evaluate each purchase and flag any that appear risky based on five characteristics. For example, we flag transactions tied to merchant category codes for vendors that sell software or computers. As part of our work during the full audit last year, we quantified how effective each flag is at identifying true technology purchases. Using the flags and corresponding weights, we assign a score from zero to one to each transaction where one indicates the highest likelihood of technology-related spending. We analyzed over 114,000 purchases made between January 2021 and December 2023. Of those, we identified 2,052 transactions that scored 0.5 or above, which represents roughly 2% of all transactions we analyzed. This plot shows how those 2,052 high-risk transactions are spread across the full analysis timeframe of January 2021 to December 2023. Each month is broken down to show the combined dollar value and the count of transactions that are at risk of violating executive order number 18. One example of a high-risk item we identified was the purchase of a cloud-based storage service like Dropbox. This purchase is high risk for a few reasons. First, the service may be incompatible with the city's network or systems. Second, without proper vetting and review, the service might open the city to security vulnerabilities as well as data protection and privacy concerns. And third, even if there are no other issues, purchasing licenses one at a time risks overspending by missing out on bulk discount pricing advantages. Looking at the full time frame, December 2021 had the most activity with 242 high-risk purchases adding up to roughly $66,000. This current update period adds new transactions from July to December of 2023. We compared the current update period against the transactions from January 2021 to June 2023 and saw a slight increase in the average dollar value and frequency of high-risk transactions. We manually reviewed all high-risk purchases for this update period and identified a handful of examples to send to technology service managers. 
based on feedback we received, we've added a label to each high-risk transaction showing if it belongs to either a mayoral or independent agency. In the last six months of 2023, there were 937 high-risk transactions, a third of which were purchases made by independent agencies. Although we saw a slight increase when comparing the two timeframes, we do not believe it is significant enough to warrant additional audit work at this time. Additionally, technology services had until the end of last year to implement our office's recommendations related to this risk. We will continue to monitor this trend, which will help us know if the city's actions to address our audit recommendations are effective in reducing the number of high-risk transactions. Any questions? I, I, I do, uh, I have one. Do you think that the spike at the end of the year in each of the three years is because people are trying to use up their budgets? Or is there something else that's going on there? No, that, that, is, that is what we think. We compared it to overall purchase card spending, and it aligns with those spikes in overall spending as well. Exactly. It's just like so a higher just, volume. Yeah, yeah. may not be following the rules, but they're doing it timely. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions before we move on to the next update? Uh, I guess I'd point out the dollar volumes. Yeah. Too, uh, it's... Yeah, not, it's, it's not, very low amount high, compared right. to Absolutely. Yeah. All right, I'll pass it to Kaylee. Thanks, Daniel. I'll be discussing the updated results for our purchase card transaction analysis. For this analysis, we used a composite model that incorporates the results of four individual risk flags. The first flag is transactions from pass-through vendors, which disguise the identity of the individual receiving the money, such as Amazon or Venmo. The next two flags are for even dollar transactions and recurring transactions between an agency and a vendor. And the last flag is for potential split transactions, which are groups of transactions with the same characteristics where the combined total amount exceeds the single transaction limit of $2,000. Our composite model identifies purchase card transactions that trigger at least three of the four individual risk flags. During the time period of January 2018 to December 2023, our composite model flagged 132 transactions, which is a very small percentage of the almost 384,000 transactions that we analyzed. This graph shows the number of transactions flagged by our purchase card composite model and their associated dollar amounts broken down by month. The trends during the last six months mostly align with past trends. However, we do see decreases in the peak number of transactions and the peak dollar amounts. During the time frame included in the graph, the largest number of transactions with three or more flags was six in August of 2019. In comparison, during the last six months, the number of transactions has stayed between zero and two. Again, these numbers are very low since we analyzed over 383,000 transactions. Although we don't see any signs of increased risk, we still looked at the Workday documentation for the 12 transactions that were flagged by the composite model in 2023. Kayla, oh, yeah. did we also bring this to the attention of the agency who initiated the transaction? Um, we did not, we just brought it to the city controller. Okay. Um, he can pass off. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we found that all 12 have some evidence of violating the city's fiscal accountability rules. 
For example, one of them appeared to be part of a split transaction where two separate transactions were used to make a combined purchase of almost $4,000. The attached invoices and workday for these transactions included attempts to alter dollar amounts and redact notes from the vendor. Upon further investigation, we discovered that the vendor note stated that a city employee asked the vendor to split the purchase into two separate invoices. We provided the city's controller with the list of purchases that appear to violate city rules. I will now cover the results of our travel card spending analysis. Our analytic categorizes each travel card transaction as low, medium, or high risk based on the merchant category code. The risk associated with each merchant category code has been determined using the fiscal accountability rules with the goal of labeling transactions that don't appear to be travel related as medium or high risk. During this update period, we reviewed the risk level assignments and made several updates based on the type of purchases tied to each merchant category code. This will help us minimize incorrectly labeling transactions moving forward. We analyzed roughly 45,000 travel card transactions during the timeframe of January 2018 to December 2023. We detected a total of 378 high risk transactions, 722 medium risk transactions, and roughly 44,000 low risk transactions. This means that 98% of travel card transactions are categorized as low risk. Overall, we've seen the number of medium or high risk transactions stay consistently low over the past four years. This graph shows the number of travel card purchases and their associated dollar amounts grouped by month and risk level. We chose to group medium and high risk transactions together in this graphic since they make up such a small percentage of travel card transactions. Specifically, the monthly count of high or medium risk transactions has not exceeded 48 in the past four and a half years, which is very low when we consider that we analyzed over 45,000 travel card purchases. As the graphic shows, the trends for the past six months mostly align with the trends from before the pandemic. However, there is a spike in the dollar amount for medium and high-risk transactions in July of 2023 of about $18,000. We looked into these transactions and discovered that roughly half of them were for hotels whose merchant category codes are business services not elsewhere classified, which we categorize as high-risk because it includes a wide variety of merchants. These hotel transactions account for roughly $14,000, therefore the spike is not really cause for concern. Although we don't see any signs of increased risk, we looked at the workday documentation for a sample of 20 medium and high risk transactions from the last six months. Out of the 20 transactions in the sample, we found that 15 of them have some evidence of violating the city's fiscal accountability rules. For example, two transactions were for in-flight Wi-Fi, but airfare add-ons are prohibited transactions. We again provided the city's controller with the transactions that appear to violate city rules. And now I'll pass it off to Chris to talk about expense reports. The city uses expense reports to reimburse employees when they make work-related purchases using their own money. For instance, if an employee pays to attend a professional conference out of pocket, they may submit an expense report to be reimbursed. We use a composite model here to monitor three risk indicators. The top spender flag looks at employees who receive the most money from the city through reimbursements during a given period. Benford's law looks at the first digit in a group of transactions to see if they follow a natural distribution. For instance, according to this law, 
the leading digit of a natural, naturally occurring set of numbers is one 30% of the time. And lastly, the even dollar flag looks for transactions with a total amount that is evenly divisible by $10. We applied this model to just over 73,000 total records for this update period, which covers all expense report transactions from January 2018 through December 2023. The composite model focuses on transactions that triggered all three risk flags. In the current update period, there were only 523 of those, which represents a very small percentage of the total number of transactions we looked at. In the last six months of 2023 alone, there were a total of 67 transactions with three risk flags. This is slightly higher than the 18 transactions with three risk flags we found in the first half of 2023. So even though the overall risk in this area is very low, we looked at a sample of uh, 20 transactions from the last six months. Importantly, all 20 tied to a city-related expense. However, one of those didn't have the full documentation detailing the nature of the expense. And lastly, in five instances, an employee was reimbursed for payments related to checking two bags on a flight, which according to city fiscal rules, the city's only supposed to reimburse employees for the first checked bag. So it's a small amount of money, but um, similar to the purchase card transactions, we did provide these to the city controllers for further review. Chris, yeah. so, so you don't look at the risks individually, only combined? We do, we do look at those as well, and then that's how we get to the composite model, is we first go through each flag individually, and then essentially apply a, an additional script that just groups all the ones that triggered all three flags. So if there was something that was, you considered unusual in, the, in e either of the risk categories, that would also be passed on to the controller? Yes, but for, for this update period, we only focus on the group of that 523, which triggered all three, but we do, our results show us the trends of each individual risk flag as well um, over time. Thank you. Now we'll discuss our analytics reviewing purchase order data. We have two analytics in this area, one to review unauthorized purchases, and one to review shipping addresses. An unauthorized purchase is a purchase that requires a purchase order, but is made without one. There are three different classifications of unauthorized purchases. After the fact violations, fiscal rule violations, and code violations. An after the fact violation is when the transaction originated as a different purchase method, such as with a purchase card, but then transferred to a purchase order after the payment for the good or service was already processed. Whereas fiscal rule and code violations did not change purchase methods, they were simply made without an active purchase order. The main difference between fiscal rule and code violations is the dollar amount spent. Fiscal rule violations are under $10,000 and code violations are over $10,000. We looked at about 13,000 purchase orders and found a little over 1,500, or 12.7%, that qualified for at least one type of unauthorized purchase. When we look at the trend line over the last two years, 
we see that fiscal rule violations are increasing by a little less than five per year, and after the fact and code violations are both just slightly increasing by less than one per year. However, when we compare the last six months of 2023 to the first six months of 2023, we see that all three types appear to be occurring less frequently. Just as mentioned in our last update, we are now reviewing each violation type to check for the inclusion of justification forms. Unauthorized purchases should not occur, but if they do, justification forms are required to explain the circumstance leading to the violation, describe how it can be avoided moving forward, and show that it has been reviewed with signatures of the appropriate personnel. We reviewed the most recent six months of each violation type and found that eight out of the nine after the fact violations that occurred included a form with valid signatures, but four forms lacked explanation of the circumstance and description of how to prevent it from happening again. 14 out of the 15 fiscal rule violations we reviewed included a form. Of those forms, one lacked an explanation of how to prevent it moving forward, and one was missing valid signatures. And lastly, 16 of the 17 code violations that occurred included completed forms with explanations of the circumstances and descriptions of how to prevent it from happening again. However, one did lack valid signatures. This means that in most cases across all three types, justification forms are included with appropriate information when an unauthorized purchase occurs. We summarized our results and provided specific purchase order information to the Chief Procurement Officer for their review. So Heather, out of how many, how many were properly authorized purchases? These are the ones that we took a closer look at, but did you describe the population? Yeah, so uniquely, so each purchase order is unique in its own right. Um, there are 13, about 13,000, 12,910 exactly. So about 13% are triggered as unauthorized. And then we follow that through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then these next few slides, we're gonna look closer at each individual violation type. So yeah, this is just honing in on the ones that were triggered as unauthorized. Great, thanks. Yeah, of course. Now we'll look more closely at count and associated dollar amount per month across the last five years for each violation type, starting with after the fact violations. As shown here, you can see the number of after the fact violations have consistently remained at or below five occurrences per month for the last three years. The associated dollar amount also remains low <coughs> under $30,000 with an average of about $8,000 per month, not including any outliers. Here we see the data for fiscal rule violations. The number of fiscal rule violations continues to be the most common type of violation committed by city staff. The number of occurrences remained under 40 per month until October of 2022, where the count increased to 42, then dropped back down before hitting its peak of 56 violations in June 2023. This is the highest number of fiscal rule violations in a single month in the last five years. However, it appears the number is decreasing slightly to less than 30 in the last six months of 2023. In terms of dollar amount, it mostly remains under $150,000 each month with an average of about $3,000 per transaction. 
because fiscal rule violations are defined by being less than $10,000, we expect the dollar amount to be low despite the high count. And here we see the data for code violations. The number of code violations has ranged between zero and 10 occurrences per month over the last five years, with an average of three occurrences per month. Although the number of occurrences is low, the associated dollar amount is relatively high due to the nature of code violations. There are some large spikes in the last two years, but on average, the monthly total is just under $300,000. Per transaction, the average total is about $73,000, not including any outliers. Overall, the count and dollar amount are higher in the last two years than the previous three years. However, the peak of 10 occurrences we see in January of 2020 and the spike of about $1.3 million in April of 2023, uh, <laughs> after those uh, spikes that we see at the beginning of last year, the count and dollar amount are both beginning to decrease. Now we'll discuss our review of shipping addresses included on purchase orders. We imported just over half a million records from raw data to support our results. The shipping addresses that match locations of known city facilities are considered safe, and the shipping addresses that do not match are considered risky. Across update periods, we consistently found false positives, which in this case are addresses that the analytic defines as risky, but we determine are safe after manual review. We found that most false positives were personal or professional addresses of vendors working with the city, and the purchase order was a payment made for services provided. To reduce these false positives and enhance the efficiency of the analytic, we added vendor addresses to our list of known city facilities. As you can see on the map, all but one of the shipping addresses found on purchase orders are associated with a safe location. There is only one risky location. We initially found four risky locations, but after review, we found that three of the four were in fact safe. Two are newly leased office spaces, and one is the location of temporary housing as part of the Homelessness Resolution Initiative. Based on our review, the one true match still lacks supporting documentation to justify it as a safe location. We provided information related to this purchase order to the chief procurement officer for their review. When we compare the results for the first half of 2023 to the last half of 2023, we see there are fewer risky locations as well as fewer dollars spent. The presence of risky locations continues to decrease in large part to the increased efficiency of the analytic. Each update period, we establish a more accurate and current list of city facilities and vendors to compare purchase order shipping addresses against. Have we uh, determined with the purchasing officer what the risky location is all about? What mm. the risky locations are? There's one risky location that you, oh. you forwarded that to the procurement office. Have they gotten back as to what it is? No. Not exactly explaining if whether or not that was an appropriate location for the purchase order to be sent. But we will follow up on that eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah we have a very good working relationship with the chief procurement officer. Right. So. Okay. Yeah, we sent this to him about a week ago. Oh, so okay. we'll, we'll follow up. Yeah. Um, 
definitely give, give them some time to review. Yeah. Another week. We also improved our analytics for finding matches between purchase order shipping addresses and employee addresses. We ran each address through a tool to find the corresponding latitude and longitude coordinates. Then we compared directly to the coordinates of addresses found on purchase orders. This increased the accuracy of matches and resulted in a list of all purchase orders that had shipping addresses corresponding to employee addresses. We initially found two matches but after review established only one true match. The one true match is likely an exception as it relates to pandemic emergency response and it occurred in May 2020 when the city was largely in quarantine. Mm. However, the transaction did not include a receipt, so we still consider it risky. And just like with all the other risky purchase orders we found, we provided this information as well to the chief procurement officer for their review. That wraps up our purchase order discussion. Does anybody have any questions before we move on? Oh. Let's continue. Great. Yeah. All right, and I'll wrap up with a handful of miscellaneous projects from the second half of last year. Uh, our primary objective of our internal contract and procurement analysis was to gain an understanding of the contract information available in the city's contract management system, Jagger. One objective of our review included looking for opportunities to use the contract data to help inform the scope of contract-related audits on the 2024 audit plan. Auditor's office leadership can use the tool we developed to select a contract to focus on for these audits. After reviewing the data in Jagger, we also identified three additional areas to look at. First, uh, we analyzed whether technology services has a list of all contracts that city staff indicated would require technology review from technology service staff. And we plan to provide uh, the list of mismatches to our IT audit team when they perform their next vendor management audit. Second, we looked at whether the contracts that must comply with the city's prevailing wage rules were also included in Denver Labor, Labor's payroll system, LCP tracker and we provided a set of mismatches between the two data sets to our director of Denver Labor. They will reconcile the differences to make sure that contractors re uh, requiring prevailing wage oversight are included in their system for monitoring. And lastly, we compared the list of the contractor's primary contact and addresses to donors in the city's election donation data to search for potential trends. And we found that the total dollar amount of donations that matched between donor and contractor staff uh, was low. And we found that the donations were spread out amongst many candidates. Therefore, we determined that, that this area would have a very low level of risk. Another project that we began to work on in the last six months of 2023 uh, was looking at whether Denver Golf accurately transferred all player profiles and balances from its old system to the new system managed by member sports. Uh, they converted to this new system on June 5th of 2023. As part of this analysis, we compared snapshots of data uh, from the old system and uh, to compared to reports in the new system to ensure that player profiles and associated balances were transferred correctly. Uh, this included checking balances related to a player's credit book, loyalty points, gift cards and certificates, 
and rain checks. And we were able to identify some player profiles that were not successfully migrated or were not migrated with the appropriate balances. Um, and we've shared these results with internally with the auditor's office leadership and provided the full list of these profiles to Denver Golf for review. Uh, any questions or comments about contract and procurement or Denver Golf? All right. This next set of slides summarizes the audit assistance that we have provided to audit teams in the last six months. Similar to our last update period, we have spent most of our time working on data-related components of audits. This slide shows the list of completed and in-progress audits that we have helped with within the last six months. Our support can be categorized into three buckets, data analysis, sampling, and technical support. The last area includes work such as drafting the methodology language uh, for the audit reports. In total, we have provided support to nine audits in the last six months of 2023. Further, our work has helped support findings in four of the five audits listed on the slide that have been completed and published. Uh, we have also begun work on four in-progress audits such as the Office's Nature and Science Museum audit. We highlight one example of our support for the residential permitting audit on the next few slides. Um, the residential permitting audit was published in January 2024. We provided support in three areas. Uh, so we helped the team pull a sample for multiple areas of their testing, analyze the length of permit reviews, quantify potential data errors, errors in the city's permitting system, Excella, and drafted their appendix detailing the analytics work for the audit. And this slide shows a figure from the residential permitting audit, which summarizes the average number of days it took the city to complete a permit review. We wanted to highlight this to show how our work helps support audit findings in our office's public reports. And And also, we will be uh, participating in a handful of audits that we'll be leading in 2024. Um, oh, sorry, these were audits that were completed in the last six months of 2023. Uh, we led a training for Microsoft Excel and in Arbutus, which are two different softwares that uh, help with data analysis. And also, we have been preparing a presentation uh, to lead a workshop at the uh, Association of Local Government Auditors 2020. 2024 conference, uh, which is in this May in Seattle. Uh, this is a graphical overview of some of the audits, audit assistance that we provided uh, to our team in the last six months of the year. And um, yes, our next steps for 2024 are to continue providing analytic supports for uh, our, our our audits that are already in progress, such as the Nature and Science Museum and Paramedic Response Time. Um, we'll be continuing to develop material for internal trainings, which will expand on the Excel and Arbutus trainings, as well as uh, delving into um, additional softwares and you know, technologies that will help our office. And we will be presenting our material for 
um, for our workshop, the AUGA 2024 conference in Seattle. So it's been a busy year. And, and it will be in 2024. It's been six months. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes our semi-annual uh, continuous audit update. Um, please let us know if you have any questions. I would mention with the Museum of Nature and Science, um, aren't there millions of artifacts? 4.1. 4.1, uh, I thought I was around that, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so we've got a lot of data to look at. Um, other business includes our next meeting. Oh, we have general business. We have a self-assessment to acknowledge. Right. <laughs> I think that was in your audit pack. Um, mm -hmm. We've also asked for information on, um, you can, you're excused. <laughs> The conflict of interest form, if you haven't submitted that, please submit it sooner than later. And uh, I think with that, we are adjourned. We will be back here March 21st at 9 o'clock. skins. That alone I thought was cool. And then the more and more I researched it, I found out that there was a soy sauce company in this building. It was actually owned by Japanese immigrants. And uh, we always joke because if like something goes wrong in the restaurant, we always blame it on the soy sauce ghosts in the basement. I never knew about, you know, the original Chinatown in Denver. I, I always wondered, I was like, why doesn't Denver have a Chinatown like San Francisco or New York. It wasn't until I actually opened this restaurant that I did research and found out that there was an original Chinatown. And it wasn't until I was, you know, 35 years old that I found out that there was this history. And it was and it was really, really cool to, to learn, you know, more of the background. Finding out that the, the nickname of the old Chinatown was, was Hop Alley. I guess a lot of people could say it's a very offensive name because it was a a Western term for this like seedy area. And so I thought it would be a cool way to reclaim that name as something different. Especially for me being a Chinese American, you know, I'm not using it necessarily as a derogatory term. You know, when you go to like New York, you know, or San Francisco that has that Chinatown, then, you know, the people that live there, they embrace it. Like they think it's a very, you know, cool, fun, interesting area. It's too bad that the area was demolished to, you know, for modern development. Through, uh, you know, COVID and like George Floyd and all this, you know, maybe we're learning more and more about different cultures and history in Denver, which is amazing. And, you know, it also makes me wonder more so of other cultures and like what backgrounds that, you know, are in Denver and the history of it.
My hope was that with this restaurant, I would be able to educate Denver somewhat about this history. If someone goes and Googles Hot Valley Denver, maybe we're the first thing to pop up. And then after that, it's all these historical facts about, about the original Chinatown.